Good morning, church. Open your Bible to Psalm chapter 16. Uh, I've seen several uh, visitors today. My name is uh, Ronnie, and I serve as an associate pastor here. I'm, I'm on staff. Usually it's Pastor Mike that's preaching, but when we were working through the Psalms, I just happened to tell him that Psalm 16 is my favorite chapter in the Old Testament. And then he said, were you preaching then? Uh, so he was gracious enough to do it. Um, so, Psalm chapter 16, um, this, uh, this actually, you know, at the end of this psalm, David talks about the pleasures being forevermore. So it's kind of, he's leading up to something about, especially at the end, on this everlasting pleasures, the infinite joy, and it should make us wonder about all the things that we go after, we run after for seeking for pleasures. Like, think about it, how, uh, you know, if you're on social media, you want to look for people who are liking you or, you know, sharing you what you posted, and some kind of that becomes a synonymous with uh, digital approval, being, being liked, and kind of giving you some kind of joy or happiness. Or what about the pursuit of uh, financial security, hoping that that would give me peace and happiness? or success, uh, what about this illusion of, uh, especially if you're single, uh, watching a Hallmark movie and thinking that you'll find the one, and then after you find this person, you would live forever, happily ever after. And even worse is this, um, <laughs> under the illusion of thinking about you're gonna live forever young, there's even a song about it, I wanna live forever young, right? <laughs> thinking that that would actually keep me happy. I want to tell the guy who wrote the song, dude, you can only stay forever young until a certain point. After that, gravity wins. Like you can only hold things up until a certain point. Then after that, gravity always wins. Even think about what about our shopping habits. Is it not just a testament, a story, that if I have this, it would make me happy and would make my life comfortable? So the title of this message is uh, Easter and Winter, although it doesn't feel like winter today, but <laughs> when I was naming the title, it was winter. Uh, <laughs> Um, but I think it's an appropriate title for us because this psalm is actually was used by both the Apostle Peter and Paul to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're following along in our Bible reading plan, we just read Acts 2 where Peter is actually using this passage to prove that Jesus rose from dead. So the resurrection of Jesus in, in this psalm at the end would actually should lead us to crave for an infinite joy infinite pleasure, because David at the end celebrates that you've made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So here's our big idea. We find our greatest pleasure when God is our greatest treasure. We find our greatest pleasure when God is our greatest treasure. 
The psalm is interwoven with three different aspects of David's relationship with God. And if you know anything about New Testament, this is one of those like the messianic psalms. So as I already said, Peter and Paul used it. So David, what he shows is his secret of how he lived a life that you could have this fullness of joy and to have these pleasures forevermore. But also, it is the secret of how our Lord Jesus lived when he was on this planet Earth. So what we see is this threefold David's relationship with God. So I'm going to read the psalm. I'm going to read the whole psalm, and then we'll dive into uh, God's word. So this is David again writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is God's word for us. So he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. They drink offering of the blood I shall not pour out, nor take the names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me, and because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and also my flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor see your Holy One get corrupted. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, would you give us an understanding, God? Would you help us? We're not just after information, but transformation, so we want you to transform us. This is a really, really amazing chapter. It talks about the infinite joy and the infinite pleasure that we could only get from you, so would you help us to experience that? Help us to live that. Yet a mere man cannot do it, so we look for your Holy Spirit. Please, God, please show up today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the first thing uh, we find in, in that first aspect of David's relationship is this desperation. So he starts with the prayer. So this, verse 1 is the only prayer. And then he makes uh, confessions about who God is and his relationship with him. So the first one, he starts with prayer. It's a prayer of desperation when he says, The Lord is my refuge. He says, The Lord is my refuge. So it says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Just feel the heartbeat behind it. This isn't just a simple prayer. He's actually praying to God, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Here's the king. Could have trusted his own, in his own army. He could have trusted in his own wealth. But he says, no, actually I take refuge in God. For he is my God. Preserve me, O God. And since we don't know the context, this prayer could be something that is preemptive prayer. So he's actually praying. It's kind of like who he is. He constantly prays. This prayer, I usually pray this prayer too. Preserve me, O God, for myself. 
It could be that, or it could be that he's in a danger, and then he's asking that God would keep him, that God would preserve him. So we don't know, but we do know is that his first instinct is to go and see God's refuge. He is trusting in God. I mean, we live in a society, right? We kind of like glorify uh, being self-reliant, and it's kind of like a thing that you're showing, demonstrating a sign of weakness when you ask for help. He's the most powerful man, and he's seeking God, seeking God's help. So it tells us that admitting our desperation for God, it's not a weakness. It's just a testament that we trust him. We confess that he's our God. He's our refuge. He's our help. So that's what David is doing here. And, and then, not only that he's trying to find his preservation in God, he, for what we see from verses 2 to verse 8 is that his devotion to God. So there are a series of things that David says about God and about his relationship with God and who he thinks God is. So we're going to look at all those things. But what you see is his devotion to his God. The first thing he says is, the Lord is my king. So David, when he's talking about God, he uses three different names for God. In verse 1, he says, preserve me, O God. So that's the name uh, El, the mighty one. So David, when he's finding, trying to find refuge, he's asking, he's calling out to El. It's the same God, but he's using three different names, El, the mighty one. So it's the same idea that in the beginning, God created El. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So he's calling out to this mighty one. And then second word is Yahweh. So he says, when he says in verse 2, I say to the Lord, the Lord there is Yahweh. So the self-existing God, when God revealed himself to Moses, he says, I am who I am. The one that is self-existing also, he's a, Covenant-keeping God, keeping his relationship with his people, Yahweh. And then the last word he uses here is that when he says, you are my Lord, the Lord there is Adonai. That means master, ruler, Lord. So what David is saying is, you know, he's acknowledging that he's Yahweh, right? You could have the self-existing God, but whether he's your master or not, and David is saying he's my master. This self-existing God, whether you acknowledge it or not, David says, you are my Lord, my master. And after acknowledging that, he actually states something so profound. He says, I have no good apart from you. You're my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. It's actually a declaration of a man who is considering that every good thing that I get from God is a blessing. Everything that I get, my kingdom, the people, my children, the wealth that I have, it's actually a blessing from God. So C.S. Lewis said this, that he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. He says he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. So that's what David is acknowledging here is that he says that every good thing, every blessing, every moment of joy says, God, it's from you. And then next thing, immediately, his, when he acknowledges that God is his king, his master, he immediately goes to 
extending it to God's people. He says, his people are my delight. Verses 3 and 4. And he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So he's not just you know, meeting them on Sunday mornings and just trying to greet them. He's actually saying, no, these people are my delight. These people give me joy. These are God's people, saints, and they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He's acknowledging that because when we think about it, the counterpart is that in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So he's contrasting between godly people in verse 3, and then he's saying the ungodly people, I'm not even going to participate in them, what they do, or even take their names upon my lips. Not only that I'm going to be part of their sin or endorse them or be with them, but I don't even want to take the names of these people who actually follow after, run after these false gods. So when he says he understood the importance of Christian, back at the time, I guess, Israel fellowship, he delighted in God's people. He found joy in their company. If you just think about it, the, just the sheer joy of Christian fellowship that we have. As the world gets increasingly secular or even divided, we get to enjoy one another fellowship. And someone asked me, even at the seminary or when, I re- when they realized that I'm a pastor, their immediate question was like, what do you love about Harvest? And my answer always has been echoing Psalm 16, verse 3. The people at harvest, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I love the way they love the Lord. I love the way they care for each other. I love the way they love for our neighbors, for refugees, for others. And it's all my delight. That is my first answer every time someone asks me is these people are my delight just the way because of the love they have for one another and for God. That's what David is saying here. Saying these people, God's people, are my delight. And you got to remember why he's not chasing after other people who run after another God because one, one time my mentor told me long time ago when I first became a Christian, he said, you got to remember, Ron, if friends are like your elevator buttons, they can either take you up or take you down. So choose wisely. And it's really important, especially in your walk with the Lord, that they can actually either take you up, that means your devotion for the Lord that can increase just because you're with them, you're fellowship with them, or if you follow after the ungodly people and their lifestyle, and then if you want to be part of them, it's going to take you down. It's going to actually take you farther and farther away from the Lord. So that is what David is doing here. And notice when he says, the sorrows of those who run after under the God shall multiply. See, they're not running after, they're not pursuing this false God for out of love for them. See, what this false God represents is wealth, success, money, because there was a God for war, there was a God for harvest, there was a God for material possessions, there was a God for sex, there was a God for everything. So 
they're going after these gods, hoping that they would actually get some blessing from this God so that they could actually be prosperous. They could have better harvest. So just think about it. The heart of the matter hasn't changed much, right? Yes, we live in a modern society and we don't worship idols, but we do run after false idols, success, money, pleasure in wrong places. We want to promote ourselves so that it would bring us joy. What David is saying is, I'm not going to be part of that. I'm not even going to be part of the people who are doing that. In fact, I'm not even going to take the names on my lips. The heart of the matter hasn't changed. But our Christian walk is important that we walk in wisdom. When I said, when David says, I'm not going to take their names upon my lips, what I want you to understand is that we need to balance what he's saying. Because you look at the New Testament when Paul is actually talking to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He's rebuking uh, Corinthians for associating themselves with a guy who was sexually immoral. And then he says, if you actually disassociate yourself with all the people that commit sexually immoral or swindlers or idolaters, then you got to live out of this world. But what he's saying is that I, you should disassociate everyone who is actually sexually immoral or idolaters or swindlers who name the name of the Lord and do these things. Because how are we going to be a good witness to the lost world if we totally isolate ourselves from them? So walk in wisdom. When you think about the saints and the unbelievers, don't follow after their idols. Don't chase after their desires, their influences. But walk in wisdom and be a good witness and be a good light and salt so you can share the gospel. So run after God because he's your joy. He's your all. And notice that only false idols, running after false idols, chasing after false idols would only lead you to more and more sorrow. And then after that, that, that was the only sad verse in, in this passage. <laughs> Rest all is, uh, it's actually, it's only going to increase, uh, hopefully, joy. Uh, so, and then from verses five, in verses 5 and 6, David says that the Lord is my inheritance. So think about it, it's all about devotion, right? Devotion, he's acknowledging, he's confessing about God. And one thing he's saying right now in verses 5 and 6 is acknowledging that the Lord is my inheritance. Because in, in Numbers, when God was assigning a lot to the different tribes, he assigns 11 tribes, lots, different lands, geographical lands. And the only tribe that he doesn't assign this um, a geographical lot is the Levites. And then God says, you don't have one because I am your portion. And what David is saying is that even though he's from the tribe of Judah, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. So he's not worried about the geographical location anymore. His, his intimacy is so near. He's having such a beautiful fellowship with the Lord that he's saying, God, I know you've assigned all these lots, but you are my lot. You are my inheritance. You could say, David, I mean, it's easy for you to say, right? Man, you're a king. Of course you can say those things. You're rich. But 
in a society where people are so discontent, is it really true that when you're rich, you would actually say these things? It's just an illusion, right? Once I get rich, then I will say these things like David. But is that true? Is that really what people say when they are rich? Because think about it. We live in a world that is so discontent with what we have. We always want to chase more. We always want to have more. But David sees his life as a blessing. And even in his trials, remember David never, like, I mean he rarely had a time of rest. And the only time he had a time of rest, he committed sin against Bathsheba. But the rest of all, his life, up until he became a king, he was hiding in caves. And then after he became a king, he was on war. And then there was this strife and chaos in his own family. And his son wanted to kill him. So he never had this pleasant life that we might think that he did. But what he's saying is, even in those trials, you are my lot. It's kind of like what Jesus said in the New Testament when he's talking about prayer. Faith should see that when you ask your God, your Father, for bread, he will not give you a serpent. So faith is this idea that you would see beyond that. You would see beyond your trials and go after your God because he would never, never give you a snake when you ask for bread. That's what David is doing. You hold my lot. You are my inheritance. And then finally, in this devotion, he's confessing. He says, the Lord is my counselor and strength. That is in verses 7 and 8. He prays in God. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Then he says, in the night also my heart instructs me. The word there for heart in Hebrew is uh, actually kidney. And I told CJ right before the service, say, hey, man, don't correct me if I say something. <laughs> but it's actually the word for heart here is the word he uses is kidney. But the idea for us is that it's actually the word refers to your conscience, your heart, like your mind. You think about these things. It's what your conscience is teaching you. So I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. He says, David saying that God would give him instruction and counsel. And we got to understand when he says, my heart instructs me, it's not a heart of a man that led by emotions or worldly desires. Because he is a man who actually has spent his life seeking God. Because notice the next verse, he says, I've set the Lord always before me. Here's the man he has said the Lord always before him, and therefore he can say that the God instructs him, he gives him counsel, and then my heart instructs me as well. It's because our common advice in our day is to follow your heart, not realizing that heart can be deceitful and even can lead us astray. Though well-intentioned advice, as one author said, has led many astray, follow your heart, has been at the root of countless broken relationships, addictions, and personal tragedies. That's not what David is saying. He says when he says, my heart instructs me. Because this is a heart that has continu continuously set the Lord before him. And consequently, because of that, his heart, his conscience is instructing him. 
When it says in the night, it could be a season of life or it could be a literal night. But it usually represents a season of depression, season of dark trials. And he's saying during that season, my heart instructs me. So then one of the most amazing things that you could say at the end of verse 8, he says, I shall not be shaken. And what has he done before that so that he could say that? He says, I've set the Lord always before me. It's kind of like a human way of saying. It's not literally taking God and putting him in front of him. It's the way we say, like, I've set my iPad in front of me. Or just to remind myself, I need this meeting that I need to know, so I'm going to make a portion note and put on my fridge. So he's just speaking human language to remind himself about God. So he says, I've said the Lord always before me. So he's doing that. And therefore, I shall not be shaken. Just think about it. How many times when you're watching news or other things, you would feel anxious, worry, or even looking at your own bank account, shaken? Why? What happened in that moment? You were putting something else in front of you. That, was, that is making you to be afraid. I remember a few months ago, I actually shared this with Pastor Mike too one time. I was watching news. Don't know why, but it's actually a flooding in Greece. It's not funny, but it's actually a flooding in Greece. And when I saw the, all the images and flooding, I, I, my heart got super anxious and I wasn't sure why, and then I realized, oh, I'm getting anxious because I, maybe I'm worried that my house is going to be flooded the way I'm looking at it right now, all the images and videos. And the fact of the matter is we live on top of the hill that even our insurance said you don't need a flooding insurance because you're on top of the hill. But see, just me watching that news, me keeping that news in front of me was making me anxious and worried. And of course I'm shaken up. Of course I'm nervous. Of course I'm anxious. But what David is saying is that, I mean, he's the king. He, in fact, he needs to be the person that actually should keep all this news and information in front of him all the time so he can be wise in creating a powerful system or the geography for his land. But he says, no, I'm actually setting the Lord in front of me. As I said, this is a messianic psalm. And if you think about it, is it not what Jesus has done in his life? On, on this planet when he was here in his human life, setting the Lord always before him, praying all nights, early in the morning, getting up and praying while it was still dark, fill himself with God's word. David is saying, that's what I'm doing. So, as we consider this, let's ask ourselves, like, what is the state of our hearts? Are we anxious? Or is, this, is our heart surrendered to God? I mean, I'm not, as I, I mean, I use that illustration just to say that I haven't achieved this. Because I need to do this constantly. I need to remind myself constantly. If not, I will be doing the same thing that David is saying he wouldn't do. That is to shake up. That's the beauty of it is that we constantly remind ourselves the God's goodness to us to see, have that faith to look beyond our present trials and to say, no, God would never give me a snake. 
when I ask him for bread? He would never give me a scorpion when I ask for an egg. It's a faith to look beyond our immediate circumstances. So what are we doing, church family? Are we content? Are we devoted ourselves to the Lord? Are we saying that God is my king, so his rules are mine? His wants, his desires, his will is mine. Are we saying that, God, if I don't have anything, you are my inheritance, so I am content? And are we setting himself up always in front of us so we can get his instruction and counsel? So counsel with David in doing all these things, he's actually now, he's celebrating celebrating the beauty of what God has given him. For it starts in verse 9, the celebration that the Lord is my hope and pleasure. The Lord is my only hope and pleasure. Verse 9 and 10, he talks about God's being, God is his only hope. So David's heart, he says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. Again, notice, He's a man who's not shaken. That's why his flesh dwells secure. Just think about it. All the products that are sold in the market, you know, these serums and these uh, face creams that say like, hey, if you're living a stressful life, just apply this on your face so you won't look any stress or you won't look, have any old age uh, wrinkles on your face. But David is saying, my flesh dwells secure. I don't need those serums. I don't need those creams because I'm content. I am actually, my flesh is secure. I'm not worried about stress marks on my face. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. And we saw the devotion of David. Of course the heart is glad. Of course your whole being rejoices because gosh, you have been setting the Lord always in front of you. And then he says something so profound that it's just hard to explain if you don't have the New Testament. In verse 10, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. How could David say that? How could David say, because all he can see is every person who's born dies. How could David say that my you won't let your holy one see corruption. What does it mean that, okay, everyone I see is dying, but no, actually, I'm not going to die because I'm gonna, even if I die, my body won't decay unless you go to the New Testament. And like I said in my introduction, Peter uses this psalm to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you go to that now, let me read it for you. So the context is that it's the day of the Pentecost, and all the Jews, uh, Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they're speaking in tongues, and, and the other Jews are so confused. Like, are they drunk? What happened to them? Why are they speaking in tongues? It seems like they're drunk. So they go to Peter and ask for an explanation, and they say, Lucy, you got some explaining to do. <laughs> like, Peter, you got some explaining to do for us. And then Peter stands up. He cites this psalm especially verses 9 and 10. And then he says this. It's in Acts chapter 2, verses from 30 to 32. He says, Being therefore a prophet, talking about David, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw 
and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. This is huge for us. Because what David is saying here, if Jesus hasn't accomplished, that of course his body is going to decay. What Peter says is, no, no, you can actually go find David's body. It's actually decayed, corrupted. But what you can't find is Jesus' body. Why? Because he's risen. His body wasn't corrupted. So he says, David was actually talking about Jesus as a prophet. He wasn't talking about himself. And why is that huge for us? Because remember what Jesus said, because I live, you will live. Just think about it. Just think about the implications of it. Our fellowship with our Lord is so deep and so intimate and so perfect that everything in this life has to end with death. Right? Game over. Once death comes, that's it. But what Jesus is saying is that our fellowship with him is so perfect and so flawless that even death can't stop it. And David is seeing that. David is noticing that. He says, my fellowship with my Lord is so pure that who, what makes you think that death would actually stop it? This intimacy that I have with the Lord, this infinite pleasure that I actually get from my Lord, the death cannot stop it. And the proof for it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, because I live, you live. And so when we die, we don't have to cry as the world cries. Why? Because we have this resurrection hope. This is the hope. This Lord is my hope. Because why? He's, not, he's the one who will not abandon our soul to Sheol. Everyone that puts their faith in Christ in his finished work, in the gospel, you won't get to experience this death that David is talking about. Because why? You would actually experience this infinite pleasure. And your fellowship with the Lord is so strong that even death can't stop it. It goes beyond death. So, and then, not only he, the Lord is my hope, in verse 11 he says, The Lord is my pleasure. He is my pleasure. He says, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So he's saying it's the declaration of God's will for our lives. What he says when he says, you have made known to me the path of life. So it's God's will, the path of life that we need to walk in. God, David is saying, God has made it known to him. And in your presence. So as I'm walking in this path of life, I'm in front of God's presence, so consequently there is fullness of joy. So you need to understand the sorrows of those who run after another gods shall multiply. The fullness of joy when I walk in the path of life that God has given me would increase fullness of joy. And not just that, right? It says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The right hand is not only the place of honor and strength, but it's also a picture of abundance. So every time you need joy, God's giving you. Every time you need pleasure, his right hand provides. And then you ask again, his right hand provides again. So it's just a picture of abundance that the right hand has that God has given you pleasure after pleasure after pleasure. 
forevermore. But are we as a church family experiencing this fullness of joy and this everlasting pleasures? I was thinking this, um, you know, when, when we just think about, like, you, you probably have seen some of these videos when you, you know, look at young kids or, or even you know, other people when they're meeting their celebrities or stars, how excited they come, become, and they, you know, they jump and they scream, like, I can't believe, like, I'm getting to meet my idol. And, and then on the flip side, when we have our relationship with our God, who is an infinite creator, who even created those celebrities, are we approaching him with that kind of excitement, with that kind of joy, that in your presence there is fullness of joy? Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right? It's just a reality. We may not say it with our mouth, that in here, we may, I mean, we would say with our mouth, right? In, this, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. But if our relationship is just transactional with our Lord, in the sense that I'm always going to him, so what I can get from him, what I can ask him, not delighting in his presence, are we really, what we're saying with our maybe not with our mouths, but with our actions, is that in your presence, like gifts, P.S., there is fullness of joy. As opposed to in your presence, like in front of you, there is fullness of joy. It's a huge difference. We need to do and acknowledge and confess not only with our mouths but with our actions is that to live that life, to make the Lord our priority, to be devoted to him. And no wonder... When you realize you're shaken up, you got to stop and ask, like, what am I doing here that I'm so shaken up? And then ask God, help you. So I, um, it's, there's a slide here, but there's one of uh, uh, Puritan, George Swinock, I think. That's his name. At least I'm saying the George right, I hope. So uh, he's... Uh, he actually outlines the criteria for what can truly satisfy human beings. And he gives this threefold criteria, and he says everything that, has to, that promises us pleasure, that promises us uh, happiness, has to pass through this criteria for us to have this eternal longing pleasure that we need for our souls. And the first criteria he puts it is, it must be perfect. I mean, that's obvious, right? Like, why would an imperfect thing would actually satisfy you if it's already flawed and weakness and there's weakness in it and the second thing he says it must be suitable to our highest and noblest part that means our immortal soul what he's saying is that because our souls being spirit we are spiritual beings the thing that object you think it satisfies your brings you happiness has to be spiritual too so first it should be perfect it has to be a spiritual being and then the third criteria, he says, it has to be eternal. Because obviously, a temporary thing cannot provide an eternal satisfaction, like David is saying, pleasures forevermore. So he poses all these three criteria, and then at the end he says, considering these criteria, it becomes clear that only God 
can pass all these three tests because he's perfect. There's no weakness. There's no flaw in him. He's a spiritual being and can relate to our spiritualness. Then he's eternal. He's not temporary. Every time you, you ask a teenager or college student, or even like, you know, you must be talking when you're talking to your own colleagues or classmates or whoever it is, when they see Christianity is a religion of just don'ts, don'ts, and don'ts, it's a religion of they're always trying to, trying to make us not have fun. We want to have fun, and your religion is just full of rules and don't want to have fun anymore, so I don't want to be a part of the religion. What I want to shake them and tell them is actually Christianity is the only religion that offers you pleasures forevermore. You're running after something that is so cheap, and what God is offering you is this infinite pleasure. Yes, it's a religion of don'ts, don't sin, don't lie, but you're doing that because you're not running after something cheap because you have something infinitely valuable, that pleasure that God can give you. That's why you're denying those. Not because we're being spoiled sport, but what is being offered to us. So, this morning, close with this. Someone that's really dear to me asked this question. She said, I need some hope. How do I know that what you're saying is true? How have you felt God's pleasure in your life? My, I mean, in the moment, my immediate answer was that, I mean, of course, like everything I said in the introduction, I was chasing after those things, and God taught me that, no, I'm just fleeing after, um, I'm just pursuing something that is so fleeting in this life. And I was driving here this morning, I just thought like, wow, that's, I need to think about this. How have I experienced God's pleasure? What's so unfortunate is, is that, you know, as a pastor who spends so much time, usually, like when you think about even my own ministry, what I do here at Harvest, it's easy for me to explain the grace of God, the resurrection of God, that God gives you infinite pleasure. It is so hard to actually experience that. And you know what I mean, gosh, it's not just have to be a pastor, right? The longer you are a Christian, it's easy for each of us, leaders, leaders in the church. We get, we get so good at explaining these things that when was the last time we actually stopped and actually experienced this grace, this pleasure of just being in God's presence? In sharing that so that we can actually help each other experience this grace, experience this infinite pleasure that God has offered. I mean, he's not going to lie. His word doesn't lie. He's saying it, and we have to take it as a face value of what he says here. So then if you're not experiencing it, it's not because of God's fault. Let's keep each other accountable. And let's just not explain grace, but actually experience grace. And let's help each other in doing that. Let's pray. God, please, please guide us.
instruct our hearts? Would you please soften our hearts to your word? This is a lot of people say this is their favorite psalm. Promises infinite joy and pleasures forevermore. God, we we want to experience that now. God, we don't want to wait till heaven to experience that grace and joy and pleasures. Would you give us that, God? Would you help us? Give us a will that will walk with you, the walk in the path that you have laid for us. Yeah, thank you, Jesus, for your cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.